Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. I'm the most scientific, the most artistic, the most creative. I'm the greatest scientific fighter of all time. Welcome to the History of the Heavyweight Championship, a podcast series from Yahoo with me, Steve Bunce. And I I don't get knocked out. In this continuing series, I will look at one year in the sports history. The main fighters, their great nights, their failures, and the dramatic and crazy changes in the sport that took place during the 70s. The white uppercut did the job. I don't think he's going to make it, friend. This is the History of the Heavyweight Championship every one of the main fighters. It is the decade of champions. In 1979, not one of the three living legends of the heavyweight division had a fight. It was the first year since 1959 that neither Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier or George Foreman had stepped into the professional boxing ring. Officially, Ali was still the WBA heavyweight champion in January of the year. He had won that piece of jewellery when he performed his last act of boxing magic to bamboozle Leon Spinks and get revenge the previous September. Ali had the belt, one of the two available, but nobody expected to see him back in a ring, any ring, anytime soon. His boxing life had drained him. Making miracles happen is a hard job. Sure, the three fighters would all return at some point. Ali to furious exposure. Frazier in an undignified replica of the great smoking Joe. And Foreman to reclaim the world title in a fairy tale many, many years later. In their absence, the heavyweight world belonged to Larry Holmes, the WBC champion, the former Ali sparring partner, the loner, the arrogant one, the young kid with the wonderful jab and the vast heart. The boxer that deserved to be mentioned with the best, but struggled for kind coverage from the press. It wasn't just his perceived attitude, it was what he had inherited. Holmes recognised the problem right then and talked about it decades later. The shadow of Ali would, I now realised, obscure Larry Holmes and whatever he accomplished. Holmes was determined to be a busy heavyweight champion, helping to create the illusion that the WBC version of the title was somehow more prestigious. The truth is that both sanctioning bodies, the WBC and the WBA, were equally damaging to the sport, both toxic masters of a business with bad enough elements as it was. The increasing annoyance at the influence the sanctioning bodies enjoyed and the fees they demanded for their title fights encouraged others. And by the end of the 80s, two more sanctioning bodies had been formed. It was carnage and 1979 is the year that it really all started. All four would have their own recognised heavyweight champion by the end of the next decade. Often the consensus champion held one of the newly created titles. 
the fighters, their promoters and their rival television companies shared a strange reluctance to fight each other. By 1979, the future of memorable, historic heavyweight title fights that shook the world, as Ali said, looked grim. Nearly 10 years later, Mike Tyson would do his best to change that when he went on a one-man crusade. Holmes would fight anybody that was available. He was from the oldest of old schools. He was also not adverse to taking a soft touch. In March, he beat Puerto Rico's Aussie Acacio. It was easy. Acacio was dropped four times before the fight was called off in round seven. Holmes knew the limitations of his opponents. In the seventh round, I even dropped him with a jab. At this level of boxing, guys are supposed to be too tough to floor with a jab, but damned if he didn't fall. Ocasio was unbeaten in 13 fights when he met Holmes and was actually so tough that Richie Giaghetti, the gnarled Cleveland figure in the champion's corner, screamed at Carlos Padilla, the referee, stop it before Larry kills him. Padilla did after one last knockdown. Pat Putnam, the chief boxing writer for Sports Illustrated, was also unimpressed with the third man in the ring that night. If Padilla hadn't called a halt when he did, the only way Acacio would have made it back to the corner would have been on a stretcher. There was no excuse for letting the young and inexperienced Puerto Rican take that much punishment. He was being paid $250,000 to fight, not to be demolished. Pat Putnam, by the way, always spoke his mind. Holmes left Las Vegas and moved on to Madison Square Garden for his next defence in June. In the opposite corner was one of the sport's enigmas. Mike Weaver was known as Hercules because of his physique. He had lost eight of his 27 fights, beaten nobody special, but under new management he was on a run of five wins, five knockouts. And Weaver was talking with confidence. Holmes is a good fighter, not a great one. I believe I can beat him. Hercules is a myth. I'm not. The television networks turned their back on Weaver as a challenger. In the end, HBO, a new channel, picked the fight up. On the night at the Garden, 14,136 paid. It was, strangely, only the second heavyweight title fight at the Garden since the fight of the century between Ali and Frazier back in March 1971. Weaver made it hard for Holmes that night, but in the 11th, Holmes connected cleanly and Weaver went down heavily. He somehow beat the count, but the bell sounded to deny Holmes the seconds he needed to finish Hercules off. Weaver never recovered and came out for the 12th with no chance of surviving. Holmes was ruthless. The fight ended after 44 seconds of the 12th when Weaver was rescued from his own bravery. So many heavyweight title fights in the 70s finished in the later rounds. Finished with dramatic knockouts or referees plunging in to rescue men. Holmes kept his WBC title. Weaver actually won the WBA version of the heavyweight title nine months later in March of the following year. Weaver is another member of the lost generation. A label given to the heavyweights who fought and fouled and crashed and burned and held versions of the title in the 80s. Their combined history is sad. Too many early deaths. Too much real talent wasted. Too many crack cocaine scandals. It was an ugly but equally gripping time for the heavyweights.
They were all on the boxing horizon by 1979. Members of the Lost Generation and others jostling for position and fighting for their dreams to come true. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Holmes finished his year back in Las Vegas in September, making his fourth defence of the WBC title, his third of the year. This fight was the test. In March, Ernie Shavers, the veteran of nearly 70 fights with 55 ending in knockout wins, had met Kenny Norton at the Hilton in Las Vegas. It is a classic 70s fight, right there with Ron Lyle and George Foreman, the type of fight that never escaped the decade. The old heavyweights knew about sacrifices. The truth is that they all suffered for their trade. Norton had broken Ali's jaw and beaten him, lost to Foreman, and the year before he'd lost his WBC heavyweight title to Holmes in a stunning fight, the 15th round that night being one of the greatest rounds ever. Shavers had been slugging his way across the boxing wasteland since 1969, feared, avoided and always a one-punch danger. On the night in Las Vegas, Norton was 33 and having his 47th fight. Shavers, 34 and having his 66th fight. They threw away the mould after men like Shavers and Norton were made. Big Ernie arrived in the ring with the Star Wars theme playing. They each bounced lightly, throwing warm-up punches only the heavy-fisted giants of the 70s scene could throw. It was the type of fight where, sitting at ringside, you take a few deep breaths to steady your hand before the opening bell and the action starts. And there will be action, and it will most likely be immediate and lethal. Shavers drops Norton heavily in the opening round. A series of thunderous punches slowly separate Kenny from his senses. He is down, but not out. Like the finest, the bravest, and some might say the dumbest, Norton is up. There is over a minute of the first round left on the timekeeper's clock. In Shaver's language, that is an eternity of hurt. A right uppercut ends the fight. Norton is down again and the referee, Mills Lane, calls it off as he struggles to get back up one more time. Official time, 1.58 of round one. For Shavers, the win secured a fight with Holmes for the WBC heavyweight title back in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace. It would be the final big fight for Big Ernie. Holmes had been too slick for Shavers when they fought the year before, not taking any risks in a WBC eliminator. It had been a shutout, a forgotten piece of boxing science from Holmes. The rematch for the title would be different. It would also be a fight that is too often overlooked. Holmes knew the dangers going in. You don't have to be Einstein to know what the deal was when you fought Ernie. Ernie was no ballet dancer. 
He was the heavy artillery of his weight class. And Lord help you if that right hand of his landed. Holmes was controlling the fight. He had cut shavers over the right eye in the fifth round. It would later require 27 stitches to close. By round seven, Holmes insists he was telling Ernie to quit. Come on, man, I'm beating you. Don't keep taking this. Holmes, speaking 25 years later, laughs when he recalls that moment, that moment of stupidity. Because the next moment, bang, Shavers lands and Holmes goes down heavy in round seven. He is gone. He somehow gets up at nine, still groggy, but he buys a crucial few seconds by walking away from Shavers during the mandatory eight count. The referee, Davy Pearl, takes a long, hard look at Larry Holmes. Pearl remembers the moment. An ordinary fighter would have stood there, dazed and helpless, waiting to be knocked down again. But as stunned as he must have been, Holmes reacted the way a smart seasoned fighter should. Somehow Holmes held, grabbed to survive, and Shavers is desperate to finish the fight with one more big punch. Holmes is blessed that night in the garden. The boxing angels protect him, and he lasts until the bell to end the round. He collapses into the corner stall. His trainer, Richie Giaghetti, broke an ammonia capsule under his nose, and just to make sure, Freddie Brown, the assistant corner man, broke another. Holmes was in a terrible state. It remains one of the finest recoveries by a heavyweight in a world title fight. Holmes boxed beautifully from that point, and a battered, bloody, but forever defiant Shavers was saved in round 11. Holmes was done for the year. It was time to try and get the two titles back together, and that was never going to be easy. Holmes and Shavers was one of those 70s fights where the lines were blurred between fact and fiction, between what is real and what is a movie. Here's Slice Stallone on Rocky. When you got in the ring with Carl Weathers, uh, how'd you guys do? Did you hurt each other? Was there? Well, there was. I mean, Carl is, as you well, when the people see the film, he's a rather large, <laughs> rambunctious human being, and. Uh, he had to learn how to throw a punch. He didn't know how to pull a punch. Mm -hmm. And it takes uh, a lot of talent to learn how to pull a punch because it's twice as hard. Because you, as you go out, you have to uh -huh. be able to stop your punch. So it's like, ah! Whereas a normal boxer, of course, wouldn't do that. He would just let it go. So now, are you pulling those on the body? Uh, I am touching the skin. I'm, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. pulling them as soon as I make contact with his flesh because uh, uh, several times in the fight, we did get a little carried away when we heard the, the uh, the fight crowd and Carl would come out and he actually thought he was a champion he would tap me a few times in the forehead and those gloves were special gloves they were sent from Mexico they're illegal in this country they're called Casanova so they're they're very very hard gloves it's like uh -huh. being hit with a cinder block <laughs> so when he hits me a few times he said Carl please you understand I wrote you I wrote you into this movie you are my imagination you understand you are a character from my mind I'm getting beaten by my own dreams I don't understand this so he did it again. So uh, on the ropes, if in the second round, when I start coming back on him, that was an actual uh, altercation. When when they separate us and we're yelling, he's going get that gorilla back to his corner and all that. That that we got a little carried away, but that's bound to happen. Out of the actual damage, I think Carl broke his thumb. I broke my ribs. I had a crack stern, and then Carl had water on both knees and and uh, lacerations. Just a simple little movie. Yeah, right, in his really spine, nice. U-turn in his back, yeah. and things like that. And I have permanent whiplash. But I'll tell you, <laughs> it was worth it. 
What, have, you, have you been able yet to show the film to, have boxers seen it? Oh, yes. Oh, what yes. do they say? Well, Angelo Dundee saw it and said, when I quit, he'd like to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, no, no, it's fake-o, fake-o. <laughs> and I heard that Ali saw it and liked it very much. Kenny Norton saw it. He, he enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's been very well received because it's, the training procedure has never really been depicted before on film. And, uh, the actual running and the, the pain and the push-ups and all that, every, everything was glamorous. This is not so glamorous at times. No, it's not at all. But, but then again, it, it's back and forth. I, I definitely, when I wrote it, I went back and forth across the line of reality, and that's, that was intentional. I wanted to uh, paint a picture as the way I wish it was rather than the way it is. I wanted to ha incorporate a little bit of magic in the movie, and that's what I think the audience is responding to. In June of 1979, Muhammad Ali announced that he was retiring. The WBA title was vacant but he would be back the following year in a truly disastrous fight, one which damaged him, his reputation, and the reputation of every single man and woman in the Muhammad Ali business. So, in the early summer, the WBA heavyweight title was suddenly vacant. The boxing power brokers had their plans. A WBA eliminator series was in place. The search to replace Ali as champion was on, Again, there had been a massive eight-boxer tournament to find a WBA champion back in 1967 and 1968 when Ali was sent into exile. In 1979, just four boxers would be involved. The WBA plan was simple. A couple of South African fighters, Jerry Kotsia and Kali Kanutsi, two contrasting fighters from the apartheid state, were selected. The other two in the WBA plan were Big John Tate and Leon Spinks. In February, Tate knocked out the fallen contender Dwayne Bobbick in the first round. Poor Bobbick had been touted as the future of the heavyweight division just 18 months earlier. That was off the agenda forever when Tate's fist destroyed what was left of his heavyweight hopes. Spinks, meanwhile, had not fought since the genuine lunacy of his defeat to Ali in September of the previous year. The heavyweight division was moving fast, fighters coming in from all angles and with some dubious reputations. June was the month. In South Africa, Tate fought Kanotsi. It was a fight with real edge. Kanotsi, a policeman, had shot a black kid, a protester, at a rally in 1977. The kid survived. In early 1979, Kanotsi had his work visa initially revoked by the American government on the grounds of moral turpitude. He did eventually fight in Miami, beating Bill Sharkey in the fourth. Sharkey had served nearly five years in prison for a 1971 manslaughter conviction. Sharkey had killed a man in a street fight in New York. The boxing business knows no boundaries when it wants to make a fight happen. There had been protests in Miami before the Sharky fight. The Reverend Jesse Jackson was involved. That is some backdrop for a fight between a white South African and a black American in apartheid South Africa. Tate did his diplomatic best to not get sucked into a political firefight, 
Bob Arum, his promoter and also a lawyer, was there to hold his hand. There was a, a, a question as to exactly when Big John would come over here uh, to fight, uh, to train. Then uh, when the statements were made by Reverend Jackson and uh, uh, all this stuff about uh, uh, protests uh, in the United States, none of which really, uh, in my opinion, uh, has materialized, uh, we decided, well, what the hell, why... Put John in a position where he couldn't concentrate fully on his training, and so we all decided, Big John, Ace, myself, that the best thing was just to come right over now. Uh, I wanted to come over here now to because this demonstrates there's no threats. I don't believe in making threats. Maybe other people believe that they can accomplish something by making threats. That's not my way. That's not the way things get accomplished. And it's just the agitators that probably still uh, won't uh, be happy uh, as a result uh, of the outcome of these meetings and those people you couldn't please anyway. Big John was given a Zulu name to cherish. He was called Intabi Nkeli Etafene. It means a big mountain on the plain. Take one in the eighth round, by the way. In Monte Carlo, also in June, the second semi-final in the WBA series finished fast. It was sweltering in the ring when Spinks came out swinging wild punches against unbeaten Jerry Kotsia. This South African stood accused of being a liberal. He had spoken out about apartheid. However, he was at the centre of the bionic fist controversy. Big Jerry had soft hands, and during surgery to fix his busted digits, metal was used to enhance their strength. It was his right hand, and Spinks got to feel it early. The fallen idol, the madcap Neon Leon, was down three times before it was stopped after just 123 seconds of the first round. It was only Spinks' tenth fight. He would have another 36 before his last fight in 1995. What a crazy, remarkable career. So, it was Kutsia, unbeaten in 22, against Tate, unbeaten in 19, for the vacant WBA heavyweight title in front of 86,000 people, mostly white South Africans, but not exclusively, at the Loftus-Versfield Stadium in Pretoria in October. Tate won on points over 15 rounds to become the WBA heavyweight champion, the man who followed Muhammad Ali. Kutsia, known as the Boxburg Bomber, would get another couple of chances and would, in 1983, win the WBA heavyweight title. The search for a unification of the WBA and WBC titles was over by November. Nobody could agree a deal and communication between the rival promoters Bob Arum and Don King broke down. The pair defied decades and had a rivalry that lasted over 30 years. In 1980, there would be six heavyweight title fights, four for the WBC and two for the WBA. All finished inside the distance. It was entertaining, make no mistake, but it was also damaging. It seemed like there was an endless list of talented but ultimately doomed heavyweights waiting for their chance to fight for the title, to win the title. Trevor Burbeck won three of his four fights in 1979. He was the man in the opposite corner for Ali's very last fight in 1981. In 1986, he did win a version of the world title. 
Pinkland Thomas won nine times in 1979. He would also win a version of the world title. Michael Dokes beat Jimmy Young in 1979. He would win a version of the world title and have an ugly end to a troubled life. And Tim Witherspoon, the man who named his heavyweight peers the lost generation, turned pro and had just one fight in 1979. He would win his world title in 1984. Very troubling years indeed. Many years after the 70s boxing heroes had retired or even died, George Kimball, one of the finest American boxing writers, sent me a poem. It was called Sleight of Hand. It's the last word on the champions, the challengers and their king, Ali. Kimball knew. Back when his hand still listened, he could make the jack of diamonds jump out of the pack and spit in your eye. He specialised in making silver dollars disappear. But those who know could tell you that his greatest magic trick of all came in Zaire. Ali was gone. The 70s were over. And Larry Holmes was left in charge to make history. He would prove to be a great custodian of the heavyweight championship. And the world will bow and admit that I am the greatest of all times when you see what I do to George Fulman. I'm just getting hot thinking about it. You are. Would you think, uh, if you're so hot about it, have you made up a poem about him? Yeah, I made up a good poem, a little short poem. I said, last night I had a dream. When I got to Africa, I had one hell of a rumble. I had to beat Tarzans behind first for claiming to be the king in the jungle. For this fight, I've wrestled with alligators. I've tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning and put thunder in jail. You know I'm bad. I have murdered a rock. I injured a stone and I hospitalized a brick. I'm so bad I make medicine sick. I'm so fast, man, I can run through a hurricane and don't get wet. When George Fulman meets me, he'll pay his debt. I can drown a drink of water and kill a dead tree. Wait till you see Muhammad Ali. Enjoying this tour through the best of boxing history, you can find more transcripts, archive videos, historical images in the boxing section of the Yahoo UK Sports site. That's uk.sports.yahoo.com/boxing. The history of the heavyweight championship is written and recorded by me, Steve Bunce, produced by Yahoo UK, with editing and sound design by Lolita Laguna.